You're listening to our Great Divorce Podcast, where we walk through one of C.S. Lewis's greatest works and discuss practically what it means for our lives today. This podcast was produced by St. Andrew in Plano, Texas. Theme song you're hearing is Shadow to Sunlight by Micah Peacock. For more information about our church and the different ministries we provide, or to find other podcasts we have produced, we invite you to visit standrewumc.org or join us for worship on Sunday mornings. Well, we are now in the third episode of chapter nine in The Great Divorce, and I didn't really think that we would go three episodes with this, but it just goes to show you that if you are only going to read one chapter in The Great Divorce, it's this one. It is chapter nine, the core, the pinnacle, where he's been leading the entire time. Welcome back to all those who sold all of your collections of everything you had after the last episode. And went to Hawaii for a really great trip. Just congratulations on the excellent (laughs) trip you just came back from, from Hawaii. If you don't know that, listen to our last episode. Now we get some ghosts in the story that personify the choices that have been made, where people continue to make choices, where they choose something far less than what God has offered them. So if the choice is heaven or earth, these are people that choose earth and earth ends up choosing hell. It says, I think the most pitiable was a female ghost, which I don't know that you'd write that in 2021, but you know, in 1950s, that was apparently something you could write. Her trouble was that the very opposite of what afflicted the other. She seemed quite unaware of her phantasmal experience. Basically, this ghost who is not only dead, but see-through a ghost who is like a smoky character. Let me describe what he said. If a corpse already liquid with decay had arisen from the coffin, smeared its gums with lipstick, and attempted flirtation, the result could not have been more appalling. That's that's how he describes the ghost. This is like one of my favorite descriptions from Lewis because you're sitting there going, oh, that's disgusting. But here's the deal. This is a woman for whom her own sexiness or her own ability to flirt and bring people to enjoy her body, that was all she knew. That was how she lived her life. So in the last chapter, there's a difference between a grumble and a grumbler. This is the difference between a person who does that and a person for whom this is all they do. All they know how to do is to flirt and attract. And when you're dead, that doesn't really help very much. Like, it's just fascinating. When you're in the high country, it doesn't help that much. When you're in the high country. Well, I can't imagine anyone in Greytown liked it either. I'm sure it worked in Greytown. I don't think it worked in Greytown. They They hated each other. But they weren't ghosts. Yeah, but no one hung out with each other. They might have worked for an don't, hour. Don't or put me two in a position hours. of defending great. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right. So I think he, I'm right, though. No. So here we have a woman for whom, like the most pitiable person, was one for whom everything that worked because she had no other tool in her toolbox besides sex. It didn't work in heaven. It's necessary to diversify your portfolio, have more tools in your <laughs> toolbox than just your sexiness or whatever it is. I think it's actually about not defining yourself by what you do. I do think one of the hardest things about, you know, small talk is the normal conversation is, hey, so what do you do? 
as the natural way to define your identity, right? So I'm a preacher that generally results in interesting conversations. Although recently I played golf and they didn't ask me what I did till the 13th hole. And there were like 12 holes they apologized for <laughs> <laughs> leading up to the 13th hole. Usually they get to that a little quicker in the round. Yeah, but, I know, <laughs> but I almost brought it up at one point in time. And turns out the guy had a dad who's a Methodist preacher is complicated. So anyway, we really connected in the end, but it really is like when you get to small talk and you go, so what do you do? You define yourself so often by occupation or whatever it is that is not actually you. You are not your job. You are not your hobby. You are not your passions. And yet we always seem to define ourselves in ways that are less, that are less us and more about some attribute of us. So don't do that. <laughs> I don't really know what to say about that, except it's just hard not to. Everything in life is organized around it yeah, uh, because it is how we spend most of our time. They then run across a number of ghosts or describe a number of ghosts who simply want to come and tell gross stories about Greytown, about hell to the celestial body. So like they go up to heaven and all they want to do is explain what hell is like. And here are these people who are in heaven going get over it. Choose heaven. Don't just tell me about all the bad things that have been done, but choose something better than all the rest of that. It was, he says, a desire to extend hell, to bring it bodily if they could into heaven. This is like misery loves company. And there's this like, I think there's this deep desire in our world that when you feel so bad, you want to bring others into that moment, that you don't want to be alone in it. And you are pretty frustrated when other people don't experience the same thing as you. There were even people who, when they get to heaven, start describing, here's how you can make heaven better. I know you have all these beautiful rivers and beautiful mountains, but you aren't leveraging it for its potential return. You ought to cut down the trees, build dams. Like there's this desire to, even when people are happy, not just happy, but in heaven and filled with joy, there is a desire from the people who are in hell, the ghosts, to come up and extend the hell even to heaven. There's some really great comments in later chapters when we get to people where it's really hard for people in hell that their loved ones are happy in heaven. And that's exactly what's happening here. I do think this is a rather consistent theme, even our world today, where rather than bring everybody up, there's a desire to pull down people that are successful back down. And the whole purpose of heaven is not to bring heaven down to be mediocre but to bring people in hell into heaven and find a better way forward. That desire to extend hell is something that is, again, a natural place for us as humans to choose something where we can't actually imagine that heaven is offered to us. And so all we know how to do is to extend the hell we're in. Robert, our founding pastor, likes to tell a story about a guy sitting out in front of a town and family comes by and says, hey, what's that town like? We're thinking about moving there. And the guy says, well, what was your old town like? And they say, oh, man, it was, it was great. Man, it was awesome. We loved everybody there. We had such good friends. And the guy out front goes, yeah, this town's just like that. <laughs> another guy, another family comes by, says to the guy, hey, so what's that town like? We're thinking about moving there. And the guy says, what was your last town like? And they go, oh, it was horrible. They were nasty people. They just, they gossiped like you wouldn't believe. They never let you alone. And the guy out front of the same city, mind you, goes, yeah, they're about the same like that there. <laughs> There's just this desire. Like often we bring our own hell with us. And so it's like, if Bob has a problem with Ann and Tom and Joe, 
maybe Bob has the problem. Like there's this desire when you enter into a place to, to extend hell over and over and over again. And so anyway, it's just kind of funny that you've got, you know, these people entering into heaven and trying to bring hell into it. They describe so many ghosts in here that it's hard to get a full sense. What I think Lewis is trying to get across here is there are almost an infinite numbers of ways to choose hell. Choosing heaven is simple. You just choose God. But hell itself is almost infinite because there are so many different things you can choose over God. There are people that come only to spit and gibber out of one ecstasy of hatred, their envy and their contempt of joy. And yet here we have even this moment. So how do they come to be here at all? Like these people who are so nasty and so brutal, and all they're doing is to come and spit in the face of heaven itself, to extend hell to heaven. And the teacher says, I have seen that kind converted. When those who you would think are less deeply damned have gone back, those that hate goodness are sometimes nearer than those that know nothing at all about it and think they have it already. This is the passage from Revelation of uh, the church where it says, I would rather you be hot or cold, but if you are lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Yeah, I think that's today's church, like global church. I think that's probably a pretty damning line. Why? It's just interesting. Like the people that feel like they're in the church it's kind of like you know, they got it all figured out. They know nothing about goodness, but they think they already have it. Yeah. There was a, something earlier, I think it was, it was earlier in chapter nine that said, it's like the person that gives and leads charities all their life, but loses their uh, love for the poor. It's like one of the greatest of the snares is like, basically it's so easy to get caught in that though. And well, like, that's exactly who Jesus ran across on earth, right? The Pharisees that had lost the point of the law. Right. The church people who actually didn't pay attention to the purpose of loving God and loving neighbor. And you'd actually rather an atheist that was passionate about hating God because actually there's some passion there and God can twist that and turn that. And if they discover who God is, which is what we're about to go in here, if you actually discover God, it turns everything around. Isn't that kind of C.S. Lewis's story, though, too? Yeah, it is. The atheist that hated God, didn't understand it, and his passion actually led to the other side. The other guy's Lee Strobel, the Case for Christ guy. I just saw recently it was like his 35th anniversary from discovering God when his entire purpose was to destroy it. But this ending of the chapter, I believe, is Lewis describing the million ways that you can reject God. Choosing all the pettiness, all the stuff in the world. There are an infinite number of ways to do that. But here we have, and he does it with a really funny way. So the ghost had been a famous artist, and uh, this new ghost says, God. And uh, the spirit, the kind of tour guide for this artist ghost guy, says, God what? And he goes, well, what do you mean, God what? And he says, well, in our grammar, God is a noun. There's this something real. Out of all the fake and all the crazy and all the things that we can choose, God is real. And so he describes it like, oh, I just want to paint this. And here you have this artist, and you discover actually that the artist just wants to paint and is actually struggling with the idea that there's nothing really to paint in heaven, that it's really great. But here's the description of it. He wants to bring his things with him to paint. And he goes, that sort of thing is no good here. And the solid person explains, he says, the success of your painting was it enabled others to see glimpses of heaven. But here you're having the thing itself. It's from here that your glimpses came. There's no good telling us about the country. There's no good like painting a stunning vision. I always think about the impressionist artists here 
who didn't give you realism where you could actually see 100% what it was like. They gave you the feeling of heaven or whatever when you looked at it. Like, that's what I think of when I see this bit. Right before that, it talks about bringing the stuff and that he should paint it. And he said, I shouldn't have bothered about that just at the present if I were you. And he says, look here, isn't one going to be allowed to go on painting? And then the God says, looking comes first. And he's like, but I've had my look. Now I just wanted to, it made me laugh because, and I'm not criticizing because I'm, I'm one of them, but you know, like the kids music pageant or something, everybody's got their phone up. <laughs> it's like, looking comes like you're in this moment, you're in like a moment of heaven and we're trying to figure out how to record it. But instead of just experiencing it. I was at a concert recently where literally everybody had their phone out. And so all you actually took a video of was everyone else taking the video of it. When instead, had that not happened, you would have all actually enjoyed it. Yeah. I just thought that was really funny. Like looking comes first and then you can paint or take a picture or whatever. The question is, what's the purpose of art? Is art the purpose or is there actually a higher purpose? Is there actually something to which art is pointing? Is there beauty? Is there truth? Is there goodness? And so it's why that phrase, it's why starting with the question of, well, he goes, God, and he goes, well, God, what? God is a noun. God is the purpose. Like our love and reflection of God is actually the point of everything. And we often lose the point of it. He goes to heaven for the purpose of painting. No, you go to heaven for the purpose of experiencing heaven. Anyway, if you are interested in the country only for the sake of painting it, you'll never learn to see the country. Honestly, if you ever worked a concert, you're not paying attention to what's happening there. Like you're not experiencing it. You're just trying to make sure that you're actually doing it right. I did audio work when I was in high school, like for concerts and stuff. And I remember not enjoying the experience because I was so stressed out trying to pull it off. That's what happens when we go. And actually, I'll tell you, this is what happens when preachers go to church. When preachers go to church, we sit there and critique the thing rather than actually worship God. It's why some preachers, you know, might choose hell in the end is because we're so used to putting on church that we don't actually experience God, the noun, the thing. What's interesting, so my mom's recently picked up painting and she's actually really good for somebody who's recently picked it up, but she paints landscapes. And so she'll get a picture and then she'll paint landscapes. But to the point of this, like it's this beautiful landscape. And when she's painting it, there's certain parts that, she's having trouble with and what she'll do is she'll turn the painting upside down so she's just painting the thing and not thinking about oh that's a tree she's thinking about that's a green spot with a white so she can actually paint it that way Mm -hmm. but it's like in this situation he's in beauty he's in perfectness and he's wanting to paint it i guess just fascinating as fascinating as a preacher who just wants to preach but no longer believes in God, you've lose the purpose for the thing in which you're doing. And if anyone's listening, yes, there are preachers for whom that's the case. I mean, it's there every are painters job. for whom that's the case. There's there teachers are, who have gotten to a point where they don't have an interest in educating children, but they're still teaching. There's people out there who run in businesses that have tons of people that at one point those people were their family and their biggest goal was to give them a life and to help provide. And they've lost that. In the preface, he says that you can recover from that, but you actually correct a sum by going back to the beginning and working afresh from there. Like, that's how I think this is. And so what he's doing is describing how to do that. He says, you're forgetting that how you began was not actually just painting. He says, that's not how you began. Light itself was your first love. You loved paint only as a means of telling about light. Oh, he must be Kincaid. Thomas Kincaid, <laughs> the, like, the, the light guy. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. I think he's more Bob Rossian, just in the, uh, anyway. You have this instruction from Lewis 
to go back to the very beginning and discover your first love. You have the instruction, like how do you gain it? So let's say you're a grumble or let's say you're grumbling or let's say you've lost the Oh, by the, the way, the, of- the troll character, we looked it up. It's Gristle. They're oh, Gristles. Gristle. Thank yes, you. Sorry. Of course, I've still never seen trolls, so I still don't understand that reference. For those of you who do, welcome. Congratulations. Each of those characters, the secret to reversing it is to actually go back and discover what you loved at the beginning. Like a marriage. When you are first, if you're struggling with your marriage right now, go back to your first date. Remind yourself why, why you took her on a second date. Remind yourself of what her hair looked like or what the conversation was like or the feelings that was in it. What did you love about that first? If you're a preacher, go back to what it means to actually walk people alongside it. If you're an artist, think about the light. Go back to the source of what was actually pure, unadulterated joy and then work on from there. The problem is it becomes polluted when we bring anything else into it. The artist keeps having a conversation. He agrees to actually walk a little bit to keep going forward. And the ghost is like, well, I mean, sure, if I keep walking, there'll be, you know, interesting people. And he goes, well, everyone will be interesting is the response of the solid person. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, I mean, really interesting people like, you know, Claude or Cezanne or whatever. And he goes, sooner or later, if they're here, but don't you know? Well, of course not. I've only been here a few years, but surely they're distinguished people. Here's the problem is he didn't actually admit that he started with light, then he went to painting, and then he went to popularity. And then painting was no longer about the light. It was all about the fact, when I get to heaven, am I going to be in the list of the, of the Monets or the Cezans or whatever it is? And the answer is, well, I don't know. Don't you know the person who actually cleaned their bathroom? He didn't say this. This is not Lewis, but I think it's in there. Don't you know the person who cleaned Claude Monet's bathroom might actually be the most interesting man you meet in heaven? There's something really deep there about our earthly vision of what popularity means or distinguishment or whatever it is. If that's what you're going for in this life, you're going to have an issue when you're in heaven. If all you are is popular and that's who you are, that's your grumble, man, you can't ever get there. He says, do you mean there are no famous men? He goes, they are all known. They are all remembered, recognized by the only mind that can give a perfect judgment. And he still misses it because he doesn't understand that God is a noun and not just a word of explanation. There is a real thing out there. Working at a church or seeing what our student ministry does, I wish all students read this part and just realized how how special they are. Like to God's eyes, like it doesn't matter. And like there's so much there, I feel like, as far as self-confidence. And I'm thinking about my own kids too. Like that is such a cool, and myself, obviously, but I think that's such a cool thought that just, you know, you're looking around at popularity, you're looking around at these different things, and that's not how God looks at it. See, I was thinking about Sam at four years old. He's about to have a birthday, uh, but we just had the birthday party. And his pure joy at just having his friends around, he wore a dinosaur costume for his fourth birthday party. He won't wear that at five or six. There'll come some day where he cares more about the feelings or thoughts of his friends. And there'll come some day where he didn't wear the dinosaur costume, yep. even though he loves it. My five-year-old starting to look around at his, what his friends look like whenever he does. I've noticed you that You can one. see it. Oh, yeah. You can see it. But even in this, it talks about you can go back and enjoy it like a child. Like, that's, you know, Jesus talks about that. Faith like a child, man. And the story actually ends, as most of them do here, actually, sadly. I don't know why. Lewis should have done more people who chose heaven. Most of them don't. That's the whole eye of the needle it's harder for a rich man to enter heaven than a camel go through the eye of a needle. Yeah. 
It is so hard to give up those things that give us identity. And here's what he says. Know that you and I are completely forgotten on earth. Meaning, all this guy's worried about, is he going to be valuable in heaven? And earth's already forgot about him. I like his response. Eh? <laughs> eh? I know. It's a very Lewis Eh? Thing. Eh? What's that? Do you mean the other people won? And he goes, Lord, love you. Yes, you couldn't get five pounds for any picture of mine or even of yours in Europe or America today. We're dead out of fashion. And the ghost goes back to convince people on earth to go back and haunt earth rather than choose heaven so that the, he might actually be known someday when he could be known by the only thing that actually matters, which is God himself. So we've now done three episodes for us on chapter nine. It's a world record chapter for us. World record chapter. What's your takeaway from the whole thing? Like when you decide, okay, so I read chapter nine. It is the greatest chapter Lewis was written. What do you do with it? What's really interesting, and this isn't exactly what you're asking, but I feel like this is his philosophy. I feel like this is how Lewis sees heaven. Uh, this chapter, it describes how he sees humanity. And he put in all the rest, chapters one through eight leading up to it, so he could tell this story. You know, we needed a bus. We needed like the bus stop. But I feel like this is the heart of what he sees and what he's trying to get across in this. He looks out in the world and sees people choosing things less than God and says, it's never going to satisfy. In the end, there are only two types of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. And one of those will lead to heaven. Everything else is going to lead to hell. Choose wisely. Good <laughs> quote, Indiana yeah. Jones. Got no place, but I know just why I'm here. Lift me out of the waste, keep me steady in the face of fear. Oh.